I'm Darcy Sterling. This is We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling. One of the things I'm fascinated with is how a normal human emotion can sometimes take on an intensity and a frequency that causes it to morph into something unhealthy. Today, I want to talk to you about one of those emotions we sometimes think of as that little green monster, jealousy. Jealousy is a normal human emotion. We are all hardwired with the capacity to feel it. Jealousy isn't an American thing. It's not a Western thing. We see jealousy in every part of the world. Most babies exhibit jealousy by the time they're just four years old. And we've all seen this, where a mom's attention is deviated, an adult has asked her a question, and you see the little toddler pulling for her attention. That is normal jealousy. Researchers believe that early on in our evolution, jealousy emerged as a protective strategy to guard our clan and our family when resources were under threat or were limited. We call this biological jealousy. Think of biological jealousy as an emotion you have when you feel an urge to guard against losing something you already have. It's just an urge, and like every other emotion, it eventually passes. But we know that jealousy isn't always benign. We've all seen people who struggle with jealousy takes on a different shape altogether. Jealousy becomes a problem when it affects you in your everyday relationships, most commonly in your romantic relationships, and particularly when your current partner has given you no reason to feel jealous. They haven't cheated on you. They don't lie. If a person's jealous feelings are not a direct result of their current partner, if it has to do with your history, and if those feelings provoke you to act in ways that others would describe as jealous behaviors, that is when it becomes a problem. Maybe you were cheated on in the past or something in your history has left you feeling raw and vulnerable to deceit or abandonment. That is the kind of jealousy I want to talk about today. And there's actually not even a word for it. So for today's purposes, I'm going to call it obsessive jealousy. Now think of biological jealousy. Remember, that's the one I was talking about earlier that harkens back to our days as hunter-gatherers. Think of that as an emotion. Maybe you feel it periodically, but it doesn't compel you to engage in behaviors that would feel controlling to your partner. And even if you feel provoked, those feelings are mild enough that you still have the ability to choose not to engage in behaviors as a response. Obsessive jealousy, in contrast, is more complex. The person experiences a trigger, which can be an external event, a thought, or an emotion, which then provokes them to engage in a behavior, going through a partner's phone or icing them out because maybe they came home late. And they do this despite the fact that the behavior has resulted in previous negative consequences. So, how does a normal human emotion like jealousy morph into a destructive force that can throw up walls between loving partners? How can something that starts out so normal turn into the fourth most common cause of divorce? I've got all your questions covered. So let's start at the top. Why are some people prone to obsessive jealousy and others seem barely phased by the biological kind? Well, it all goes back to your attachment style. So. Attachment theory is a psychological perspective that posits that the extent to which our primary caregivers met our needs as babies sets a template for how we're going to relate to and attach to adults for the rest of our lives. 
in the event that we come out of childhood with an anxious attachment style, that is going to make us more prone to obsessive jealousy. And the reasons are because people who come out of childhood with the anxious attachment style had parents who met their needs inconsistently and whose nervous systems and brains linked up acting out and demanding that their needs be met in order for their parents to respond in a way that felt soothing to them. Now, it doesn't mean if you have an anxious attachment style, it doesn't mean that you had terribly negligent parents. It just means that the goodness of fit wasn't there. You had a level of sensitivity that your parents were ill-equipped to meet. And so perhaps they were better capable of postponing instant gratification as adults, which of course they would be, and for whatever reason, were not fast enough to respond to your needs as a baby, people with that attachment style link up that the way they feel better is by hollering and yelling and demanding that their needs be met. And only then were their needs met. So as adults, they have a predisposition to try and, first of all, regulate and calm their own emotions in the company of their primary attachment figures, so their friends, their closest people, as opposed to other attachment adaptations where they're better capable of self-soothing or meeting their own needs in isolation. The anxiously attached person really requires a primary attachment figure to self-soothe. They require the company of another person to self-soothe. And what they learned as infants and as little kids is that the way they get their needs met is by essentially making other people do what they need to feel better. And if you think about obsessive jealousy and how it manifests, when we think of very jealous people, people who have struggled with romantic jealousy, most of us can land on an example of a person who responded to their own jealousy by trying to control their partner. It's not that different from the way the infant or the toddler demands that their needs be met through drawing and attracting their caregiver's attentions to them. So there is a very strong correlation between anxiously attached individuals and individuals who struggle with obsessive jealousy in adulthood. So you might be wondering, how do you know if your jealousy is the biological kind or the obsessive kind? I have an answer for that. I have a jealousy quiz that is literally called jealousyquiz.com. You go in and I think it's like five or 10 questions, super fast you'll get the answer right there and you'll know immediately. You'll get a score on a scale of zero to 10. It rates and scores your propensity for obsessive jealousy. Now, when we think about someone who struggles with obsessive jealousy, what comes to mind are partners intending to soothe themselves by controlling their partners. 
We see a breach in boundaries often, a breach in privacy, an unwillingness to allow their partner to have privacy. Oftentimes the person will demand to see their partner's phone or will like help themselves to their partner's phone. They may ask for passwords. The person has very rigid expectations around what constitutes appropriate behaviors versus concerning behaviors in their romantic relationships. So if their partner says they're going to arrive at a certain hour, they absolutely expect their partner to arrive at that hour. And if the partner is late, that can create a whole cacophony of outcomes that then make the partner with the poor time management skills feel like they're in purgatory because they can find themselves on the receiving end of a cross-examination, the likes of which they've never experienced before. We mostly see controlling behaviors when we think about obsessive jealousy. We mostly see people trying to soothe their own needs by controlling their partner, by micromanaging their partner's friends, their partner's exes, their partner's ex stories. Oftentimes with people who struggle with obsessive jealousy, they are not down for their partners to have anything to do with their exes or any relationships or connections to their exes. We'll often hear that the partner is requiring them to delete their exes, wipe out all of their history in an attempt to make them feel better. The thing is, this never works. This never works because obsessive jealousy is a it's an issue within the individual. There is no amount of good behaviors that the partner can engage in that is going to soothe the jealous partner enough. And what will happen is the partner who is on the receiving end of these controlling requests by their jealous partner, their world just shrinks. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller. If you don't, if you aren't in a relationship with somebody who is like a massive accommodator, super laid back and easygoing and happy to step away from their entire world and tribe to blend in and kind of meld into one form with their partner, it's going to be constant struggle, a constant power struggle. And the power struggle feels like you're in a constant tug of war. Now, interestingly enough, not Everyone expresses jealousy the same way, and there's quite a divide among sexes, among gender. Men are much more likely to be verbal with their requests to their partner for them to accommodate their behavior so that the partner is not getting triggered with jealousy left and right. Women, on the other hand, there are plenty of women who will engage in controlling behaviors with their partners. But what I learned, because I did a ton of research on jealousy several years ago, I wound up building out several jealousy courses for my clients because it is such a prevalent problem that people have and there was nothing out there. So I wound up building a series of courses geared to fixing people who struggle with jealousy. And I crowdsourced people on social media and I asked them to volunteer, allow me to meet with them for like an hour so that I could ask them a whole series of questions about how their jealousy manifests. And what I learned is that oftentimes with women, their partners don't even know that they struggle with jealousy, which amazed me because I am somebody 
who, when I feel an emotion, everyone in the room, like, especially if it's a severe triggered emotion, that's reflected in my face. I, I can't pretend not to feel the way I feel. I can also regulate myself pretty well so that this is not a common problem for me, thank God. But I was astounded to learn that women oftentimes are in long-term relationships and their partners have no idea that they're jealous. In fact, they're dying on the inside. They are containing all of the distress that they feel around their insecurities and their fears of abandonment. And all of that is taking so much energy. It requires so much energy, by the way. Shout out to people who struggle with jealousy and who manage not to impose that on their partners. It's like it's either going to be a shared problem or it's going to be a unilateral problem with the one partner. And either way, it is an enormous amount of energy and dysregulation, emotional dysregulation to have to manage. So men are much more likely to express their jealousy, you know, because women, we don't want to look crazy. We don't want to look dramatic. We don't want to look dysregulated because there are already so many presuppositions about us being dramatic and we, we've been made to feel like expressing any human emotion will make us look crazy. And so we try not to. And that is how I made sense of this cohort of women who struggle with jealousy, whose partners have no idea the struggles that they have to contend with. So there is a big divide in how jealousy gets expressed with genders. Women are also much more likely to ice their partners out, to withhold and withdraw themselves and go inside. And what that looks like to a partner is like they've walked into an Arctic freeze that they weren't expecting. And now they're in the company of somebody who just had a thought or had an emotion or perhaps saw something on social media, they didn't necessarily even do anything to provoke the jealousy. Maybe they were out to dinner and a woman or a man looked at their partner and like, next thing you know, their partner has nothing to say. She is silent. So that is much more in line with how a woman is likely to react. However, plenty of women who struggle with obsessive jealousy are quite verbal about it because it is miserable to live with and quite difficult to fix, might I add. However, there is absolute hope. I'm going to give it to you a little bit further down. That is how obsessive jealousy tends to manifest. The other thing is that the person who is struggling with jealousy tends to be quite other-focused. They're not understanding that there is no amount of controlling or reining in their partner's behaviors that's actually going to make them feel okay. Because as long as the world is open, as a matter of fact, fun fact here, during COVID, people with obsessive jealousy, they finally had peace, particularly during lockdown. When their partners weren't going to gyms and weren't going to work in person and weren't socializing in the ways in which humans socialize during normal times, they were quite calm, which I found interesting and not surprising because the person's world was quite limited. What I like to tell people who struggle with obsessive jealousy is this. Jealousy is like having an STD. You can't fix it 
by focusing on your partner or even breaking up with your partner because the disease is inside of you. Even if you get rid of the partner, the partner leaves, you still have the STD. You then have to fix that inside of yourself. It is a you problem. It is not an other problem. The other interesting thing with obsessive jealousy is that oftentimes people are reticent, they're loath, they're hesitant to try and fix it because there's an aspect of the hypervigilance of the anxiety that makes them feel like their eyes are peeled and like they're going to see it coming. It's almost like an addiction. In the same way that an addict thinks that their drug of choice is the thing that keeps them together, but it's actually the problem, that's similar to how people with obsessive jealousy can sometimes feel. They feel protected by their jealousy. They're loath to change their behaviors because the only thing that is worse than being betrayed is being betrayed when you're blindsided and not expecting it. And I heard that again and again and again from the people I researched to build out these courses. The reason why obsessive jealousy is so damn hard to control, this is your brain. For those of you who are not seeing this visually, I'm holding up a brain. And on the other side of the brain is a diagram. That little thing there, in the middle of your brain is the amygdala. If you've been following this podcast for any amount of time, you'll be familiar with that term because I use it again and again and again. When a person who struggles with obsessive jealousy is triggered, what happens to them is they are escalated so rapidly and they immediately are pulled out of their prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that allows us to evaluate and anticipate the consequences of our actions, and they go immediately into their amygdala, which is the part of the brain that can only keep us alive. It's the oldest part of our brain. We all evolved with an amygdala, and it can do one thing, keep us alive, and it does it by choosing multiple choice, fight, flight, or freeze in a triggered moment. So when you are triggered and you're in your amygdala, you have no ability to think your way out of it. You have no ability to logic or reason your way out of it because the part of your brain that is in charge of logic and reason is pulled offline the minute you're in your amygdala. And that is why obsessive jealousy is so difficult to control. So at the time that I was building these jealousy courses, social media was particularly Instagram and TikTok had just started, you know, they're just a few years old, these courses, they had really blossomed to a level that we had not seen previously. And what I learned is that social media is one of the biggest triggers for obsessive jealousy. And we can all imagine that even those of us who are blessed and lucky enough not to struggle with obsessive jealousy, we've all experienced being on social media, feeling a little triggered, feeling a little, you, you get a tidbit of information on social media. And then what do you want to do? You want to get the rest of the answer. So you dig a little bit deeper, you scroll a little bit more on your phone, you're looking for the answers. And what you're getting again and again and again is another half answer or another quarter answer. You're getting fragmented pieces of information. This is by design. Social media was intended and is intended to hold our attention. They can't hold our attention if they close up a conversation. And most of us don't use social media, thank goodness, 
in in the way that we would write a memoir. So what we're posting is just a drop of a story. It's just a moment in time. But without context, the person who struggles with obsessive jealousy finds themselves riveted, pulled in. And what they want to do is they want to find the answers. And even though they rarely feel better the longer they stay on social media, they go down a black hole and they blink and two hours have passed. So what we know that social media does is it creates a neurological feedback loop in our brain for somebody who struggles with obsessive jealousy in much the same way that gambling and slot machines will provoke this neurological feedback loop in the person who's addicted to slot machines because all we need is a random hit. So for the slot machine, that's going to mean money comes out of it. And for somebody struggling with obsessive jealousy, that's going to mean that they get a complete answer to their question. All you need is an intermittent or a random hit for your brain to want to do that again and again and again. What we know about learning theory is that the greatest conditioning is intermittent rewarding. So if I were to reward you every single time you gambled, you would not be nearly as addicted as you would be if every so often in an unpredictable way and shape, you got some money. And that is very similar to how obsessive jealousy plays out with social media. Every so often, the person who struggles with obsessive jealousy is going to find themselves on the receiving end of a full, complete story, but it is a minority of time. The vast majority of time, the person leaves or ends their quest on social media. Look, we all call it social media stalking. There's a reason we call it that. You know, people who don't even struggle with obsessive jealousy can sometimes engage in that. It's a nightmare. So social media is one of the biggest triggers for people who struggle with obsessive jealousy to the point where I created a course just for people who struggle with social media jealousy, because that is a whole different level of problem that needs to be fixed if their manifestation of obsessive jealousy happens through social media. So what do you do if you struggle with obsessive jealousy? Is there anything we can do to control it? Yes, there is. First and foremost, let's go back to the little diagram of the brain. If we know that when our amygdala in our brain is activated, we cannot think clearly, we can't reason, we can't logic our way through decision-making, and that is a fact, then my first goal for people who struggle with obsessive jealousy is to keep them the hell out of the amygdala. Because once you're in there, you're already triggered out of your mind. So the first thing I do with my clients and students who struggle with obsessive jealousy is I ask them to pick a calm moment where they're home, they're feeling safe, they're feeling grounded and in control. And in that mental state, I ask them to make a list of their most severe jealous triggers. And then I ask them to create a set of rules for how they're going to manage those triggers moving forward. Knowing these things are a trigger, what can you do so that you don't have to come face-to-face with that trigger or so that you automatically know that when you're face-to-face with this trigger, this is the thing you do to get the hell out of there before you're completely in your amygdala. I call those rules bottom lines. Bottom lines are essentially boundaries 
that you never, ever cross. I never want somebody who struggles with obsessive jealousy to cross a bottom line. Bottom lines keep you from having to manage situations when you're incapable of managing them because you're in your amygdala. So you do all your thinking when you're actually capable of doing that thinking. Bottom lines are a good temporary plan to break the pattern of how you've been responding. And then you have to do the deep healing. You have got to get to the root of your jealousy and heal that. And that requires some work on attachment styles. Ultimately, I would say that if you are worried that you might have obsessive jealousy, go to jealousyquiz.com, take the quiz to see where you land on the spectrum. The results of that quiz will give you access to my seven-day jealousy challenge, which will walk you through the entire bottom lines exercise, and it'll also give you access to a bunch of really effective tools to use for jealousy. Now, what if you're on the receiving end? of obsessive jealousy, meaning you're in a relationship with someone who struggles with romantic jealousy. That is really important. I will say this. The longer the person has struggled with jealousy, if they have had multiple relationships in the past where jealousy has been a problem for them, the longer the person has to live with jealousy, the deeper the responses are in their muscle memory, in their emotional muscle memory, the harder it is to correct and change. So if you're in a relationship with somebody who struggles with obsessive jealousy and they're not doing their own work, and I would argue that it is a very specialized thing to heal this, I wouldn't have built a series of courses if there were something I could point my clients and students to. I only did it because there was nothing that I could point them towards. I will say that um person's unlikely to change, very unlikely to change, unless they find an evidence-based course to take, and there aren't many. I don't know if there are any outside of mine. And this is not a pitch for my jealousy courses. They're not even available right now. I'm going to make the seven-day challenge available to people, but I'm not launching my jealousy courses. I'm just using this as a frame of reference because I want you to understand that the only reason I built these courses and they took years to build is because there was nothing I could point people to that already existed. And obsessive jealousy is a very complex thing. It's a very complex problem to address. I had to employ attachment style theory. I had to employ addiction theory. And I had to employ a lot of DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, in putting my programs together. It is very, very tricky. And it's very involved. But the thing is this, if somebody is struggling with obsessive jealousy, they're not confused about it. Most people who struggle with obsessive jealousy are painfully aware that this is a problem for them. I have rarely found people who are like, nah, I don't want to change this. Almost across the board, when people know that there's a solve for it, they want to fix it. So again, back to the question of what do you do if you're in a relationship with somebody with obsessive jealousy? It depends on where you are in the relationship. I'll say this. Early on, if somebody exhibits controlling behaviors, if they try to impose rules on you, if they ask you not to talk about your ex and you're not talking about your ex in an obsessive way or relentlessly or in a way that would make another person feel insecure or uncomfortable, 
if they're asking you to delete people of their gender or their sex from your phone and your social media, and it's very early on, I'm going to tell you what I would tell my client. The answer is no. No, I'm sorry. I won't do that. Because the more you try to soothe your partner's distress, the more it reinforces that that is their solve, that their solve involves you changing your behavior. And I'm telling you, your world can be this big, and I'm holding up my fingers in the shape of a zero, the person's still going to be struggling with it. So the best advice I can give you is if you're early on in a relationship and the person you're dating is requesting that you do things to fix their jealousy, the answer is simply no. Now, what that does is one of two things. Somebody with obsessive jealousy is never going to stay with you. They're, they can't stay with you because they need somebody to accommodate them, and they're not going to tolerate that. So that's one way of fixing the problem. The other outcome is the person may just have a propensity for low levels of obsessive jealousy. So obsessive jealousy, it lands on a spectrum. No disorder that we have is binary. It's not black or white. There's a spectrum for how severe our struggle is. And so if you set those boundaries and the answer early on is, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that, then the person who has very low levels of obsessive jealousy or maybe just has the biological kind is going to get the sense that if they want to be in a relationship with you, they're going to have to manage their own stuff. And I've seen it where the partner just manages to regulate themselves, begins to learn how to regulate themselves because they don't get in the habit of expecting their partner to fix it for them. That is partly how obsessive jealousy blossoms into a significant and severe problem. It's when the person has a history of partners trying to accommodate them, trying to help them to regulate themselves. When the person has a history of partners trying to help them with that, which is actually lovely. It's like, you know, you're in a loving relationship with somebody, you, you see your partner struggling, who the hell wouldn't want to help that? But I am telling you, there's a reason we call jealousy the little green monster. And we call it that because like the minute you start feeding it, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You cannot feed jealousy. You can't. So in rare instances, I have seen where a partner has just, the answer has been no. No, I won't delete my ex's contact info on my phone. No, I won't let you look at my phone. No, you can't have my passwords. No. And the person has been able to manage their distress and it minimizes because they get used to managing it. They get used to managing it themselves and they're not looking outward for a solve. So that can be really, really helpful. Now, a very common question that people have is this, is it possible to be jealous platonically in other relationships? And the answer is absolutely. It is absolutely possible. We see this in friendship groups where a new friend comes in or one of the friends is not included in all the plans and suddenly they start to feel like maybe they're getting iced out, maybe they're getting squeezed out and they experience jealousy. Yes, absolutely. Jealousy can be pervasive and it can manifest in any kind of relationship. 
What I want to do is distinguish jealousy from envy here, because another common question is, can you be jealous of other people's success or their lives, which we've all experienced on social media, of course. That's different. That is envy. Envy is jealousy's cousin. Think of jealousy as wanting to protect and keep the thing you already have from an outside force taking it away from you. Think of envy as wanting the thing that somebody else has that you don't have. So cousins, but not the same thing at all. And people make that mistake all the time. So if you find yourself on the receiving end of discomfort watching someone else get promoted or somebody else hit milestones in life that you want and you're not yet reaching, you feel you're not keeping pace with, that's envy. It's not jealousy. Now, I will tell you, I have heard clients tell me throughout the years that they appreciate a little bit of jealousy in the beginning of a relationship. Like they appreciate their partner expressing a desire to keep them theirs. I get that. That can be very reassuring, especially very early on in a relationship. And I can imagine that being quite gratifying, but I want you to be careful with that. And I want you to be careful because you don't know how deep someone's wounds go who is exhibiting these small amounts of jealous behaviors. And like I said, jealousy became known as the little green monster because the more you feed it, the bigger it gets. It doesn't stay little. It grows and grows and grows. And as gratifying as it could feel and does feel early on to know that your partner wants to keep you for themselves, I would not breathe oxygen into that for anything in the world. Find another way to feel reassured in your relationship because once you open the gate for jealous behaviors, once you give permission for your partner to behave that way, it is a slippery slope. And we, again, because we don't have a way of x-raying your partner's wounds, emotional wounds that they came out of childhood with, we can't predict how far it's going to go. So what I would encourage you to do is not feed into it, not breathe oxygen into it. When you see those behaviors manifest as gratifying as it might be, I would shut it down. It's not worth the slippery slope. It's not worth the risk that that can blossom into something because it becomes unmanageable very rapidly. Okay. This feels like a good place to hit pause. We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling is a Sterling Standard production. This episode was produced by Darcy Sterling with editorial support from Vicki Vergolina. Editing by Bart Migal. Our theme music is by Trending Music. Special thanks to Amanda Cristiani and Preston Smith. Please follow We Need to Talk with Dr. Darcy Sterling wherever you listen to podcasts. We will be back on Tuesday with another episode packed with relationship and dating hacks you won't get anywhere else.